Alright guys, so on this episode of the podcast we've got Raymond Asfour, who's a he was part of the national team from the very beginning. He was actually involved in Lebanon rugby since two thousand and three. Um just to let you know, we've noticed that towards the end of each podcast, the last ten or fifteen minutes, give or take, there's been <clears throat> some issues with the connectivity, with the syncing and stuff. Um but we fixed all that. It's all good. So from now on We've, everything should be great. We've got mics. We've sorted out the connectivity issues. So sit back, enjoy the podcast, and let us know what you think. Okay, here we are on our next episode of The Conversation with Kareem and Joe. By the way, Ray, do you get it? Uh, no, I don't get it. It's a tricky one. Because convert, like you when you uh, kick, convert and conversation, I've mixed them together. That's genius. It, it wow. actually it is genius. Wow, yeah. So if you if people that don't Oh Kareem, that was that name. Um so if you haven't recognised the accent, it's um it's our se- second favourite Irish man behind Steve Aboud. Um it's uh <laughs> it's Raymond Ask Four. Ray is another uh, original 15, or 23, we would say, original 23, who played in the first um, international test for Lebanon. He's been around Lebanon rugby since, what, 2004, 2005, Ray? 2003. 2003, Jesus, he is old. So since 2003, um, and now he's a board member. Um, we won't go into too much detail about that. Um <laughs> Um, yeah, so first of all, welcome on the podcast, Ray. Welcome, mate. Thank you. What a some... pleasure to be here. I've been waiting for my invite for so long. Just got lost. Hey, you were invited from day one, weren't you? <laughs> Took some persuade to get you on. Great to be here. Pleasure. All right, so let's go straight into it. So the first thing that I want to ask off the top of the list is, so like you just said, you've been around Lebanon rugby since 2003. So obviously, tell us, where were you born? Where were you raised and how did you get involved in rugby in general? So um, I was born in uh, Northern Ireland, Northern Irish accent, but I lived the first four years of my life in uh, Lebanon. So my, my dad kind of sent my mum out to have me effectively uh, in, in Northern Ireland. And then I was taken back to Lebanon two weeks later. Um, and we lived in Ebrumena, actually really close to where Ronnie Bashur lived at the time, bizarrely. Um, and we lived there and then we left uh, Lebanon in 1989. And my mother's not Irish, she's Scottish. Uh, my dad's Lebanese. Uh, but my mother's mother, so my grandmom, was working in Ireland at the time. So we had nowhere else to go except her. So we went to Ireland to stay there for a year till things calmed down. But I think like a lot of people, a year turned into forever. So I grew up from the age of four in Ireland until about the age of 18 when I kind of went off to university in England and kind of left Ireland for good okay stop um, there. let's have some questions because for, for a lot of people that don't know when uh, you say Northern Ireland you don't mean just the northern part of Ireland it's a separate different country correct uh, a lot most, of people would not know that mo- no a lot of people no, know mo- that. I think the most people know that Korean maybe just really? you. well it took me a while to figure that out it took me <laughs> so okay but okay so you're in the Northern Ireland so Belfast area right uh, yes, yeah, so 30 miles. Where Belfast is the capital. 
Yeah, so th- 30 miles south of Belfast, about 40 minutes from the Southern Irish border. But you're right, different country, so kind of UK. So, okay, so so in terms of the um, Irish teams that represent, like, the franchise clubs for rugby mm-hmm. in Ireland, there's obviously Munster, which is based in the Republic of Ireland, Leinster, Republic of Ireland, Connacht, Republic of Ireland, and there's only Ulster that's from Northern Ireland. Is it because... Rugby is not really that big out there, or what? You know, is a what's the reason behind it? And uh, no, it's just it's just the the four provinces of Ireland. Um, it's just split up and and governed by province, and and Ulster's the north. It's nothing to do with how big it is. Um, so Ulster would have been the local team that I would have gone to see with friends on a Friday night, typically. So we drive up to Ravenhill, we'd get our tickets. We used to try to sneak in as like you know, under 14s, even when we were 18, to try to get cheap tickets, and that would, you'd go watch Ulster every every uh, every Friday night. So but there's nothing to do with size. It's popular in both the south and the north, um, just just the way the provinces were carved up. You still a fan of Ulster? Do you still follow him or what? Um, no, I'm not, no, I'm not really a fan of... I mean, I'm, I'm not, not a fan of Ulster, but I don't follow them, I should say, um, mm. as much as I used to. I'd like to actually kind of get back and see, watch more live rugby and catch the odd Ulster match when I'm home, but it just never seems to work out. Mm. So, um, so playing in rugby in Northern Ireland, um, was there is there a lot of clubs where you were, or was there just like were you just like in a small little town with like one or two clubs, or was it really big sport growing up? Yeah, so it's um, it's interesting actually. Northern Ireland, it it in a lot of ways divides itself along um religious lines so a lot of protestant schools will play rugby it's not absolutely the case um and a a lot of um catholic schools will play uh, a number of sports but gaelic typically so um kind of irish football um and i always i always really wanted to play gaelic a lot of my friends played gaelic and but i never went to that sort of school i went to a school that played rugby so i grew up from the age of 11 playing rugby and that's when i started but there's loads of clubs locally. You know, it's it's not a place where you think, oh, not many people play rugby. Rugby is played a lot. Um, kind of in Ireland, there's loads of clubs. In the same way, frankly, you know, in England or when Thomas picking a club, he he looks and there's a couple within driving distance from him that he could join. It's the same in Ireland. But for, from a school perspective, I never joined the club before I finished school. It was only when I was I only played when I was um, at school in high school. Okay, so so what age did you start rugby then? Eleven. So from the age of 11 till 18, did you ever go back to Lebanon, like like for a summer holiday or anything like that? Yeah, we used to we used to go back quite often um, summer holidays like everybody else. So like a couple of weeks in holidays or maybe the odd Christmas. But yeah, we definitely we definitely went back a fair bit, and, you know, to visit family and so on. So when you went back, you didn't think, oh, let's see if there's anyone that plays rugby or just to give it nah. a go? Not that age. Like, you're not when you're like 13, 14, 15, you're not really thinking like that. Mm. Um and then what happened was when I finished school at the age of 18, I, I didn't go to university. I, um, I took a year out and I went to Lebanon. So when I turned 18, instead of I deferred my entry to uni and I went to, to Lebanon for the year and I taught, um, taught quote unquote, uh, PE in a, in a school um, and also did some learning support for some kids with learning difficulties uh, like during the week. And then I played rugby kind of. Tuesdays, Thursdays, that's when I started, 2003, when I was 18, Tuesdays, Thursdays, kind of training, um, as it was then, and, and matches whenever there were matches. So, uh, How did you find out about rugby in Lebanon? How did you get involved? 
So I have some friends in Lebanon who are um, half Lebanese, half South African, and their mum was South African, and she kind of said, oh, I'm pretty sure there's some uh, guys that play rugby around here. And we got, I think we, we got the name of kind of people who were um, involved, and it was your dad, actually, Kareem. So it was Alex, that whose number I got. And then I give your dad a call, and he said, yeah, come on down. These are the times, these are the days. And started going down the training. And there was also a bit of a social scene where we, we would all meet up at different hotels, places like the Marriott, to um, watch rugby matches on TV, to watch internationals. But it started off basically like it does where with any rugby player that any time goes anywhere new, which is you find out who's training and you go down to training and see what it's like. And it just took off from there. And that was, yeah, that was 2003. Is that that, that bar that. that used to go to at Marriott, was that Champions? I think that's, I think it was actually. And it was nice. There was like, you know, on a morning where you'd have an international You'd have 25, 30 people there to watch the rugby. Yeah, it wasn't really? like, up, yeah, 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 like the whole definition would go down with like, often with wives and so on to, to watch the rugby and you'd get, you know, you'd get breakfast and you'd, you'd matches were in the morning and it was really nice. Yeah, but I, my dad always used to tell me of all the stories back then because like before when they were first starting out or in those early years, there was literally probably only like four or five local players. The rest of them just all expats like French or English or Irish, you know, who were there working for something and they just wanted to play rugby. There's only a few, yeah. like, local, like, the local ones were probably, like, Bassam, Serge, Hassan, and, like, one or two others that my dad brought from, like, the family. Like, remember, <laughs> do you remember my cousin Abdullah, Aboudi? Yeah. You played with him, yeah. And then there was the one kid who worked in the hotel that my dad was, my dad had, the little one. Oh, he was on the wing. He used to Yusuf. wear, Yusuf, that's the one, Yusuf. Yeah. Uh, he brought him along and yeah. <laughs> just recruiting people he knows like <laughs> he just recruit, yeah he used to just go around the hotel and ask does anyone want to play rugby we've got a game this weekend and he was just like this guy was this kid was like a waiter so he was like yeah all right i'll play <laughs> brought him down to training but he was like quick, pretty quick as well and he got really into it he, was, he wasn't too bad he was a good kid i don't know what happened to him i think he like went back to syria during the war or something yeah i don't know i was actually thinking about him recently randomly but it, it's funny how um that happens. People just get invited along, get involved in sport, and then that's the connection. And he, he was around for years, but yeah, I haven't, I haven't heard about him in ages. Yeah. So what, what was your um, your first impression of rugby in Lebanon? I mean, what kind of sort of standards had you been playing up in to Northern Ireland until then? Was it kind of school level, or did you play at clubs, or were, yeah, you, only, was... were you kind of any senior rugby at that point, or...? No, it was exclusively school rugby. So effectively, I finished school in June, and in September, in August, I went to Lebanon. Yeah. Um, so I just like everybody else, kind of done a couple of years of first XV rugby, and then just left and and kind of moved up. And it's it's different, isn't it? It's like any leap from schoolboy rugby to any club, it's automatically different because you're not playing in your age range. Mm. Uh, but to be honest, I mean can't overreg it a lot of it was touch we used to just play massive games it was so much fun we used to play massive games of touch basically because your dad kareem and mike just want to play touch um, <laughs> so it was great but it's funny my reflections at that time were less about the rugby and more about the feeling of being involved in the rugby and i used to love it like we used to get get a bus or service across to wherever the we used to play in the arab university in cola and we used to kind of go across there and play and then you'd be playing two hours you know what it's like, those really humid, hot nights, um, amazing. And then I actually have vivid memories of doing stupid things. That I would, if, if my kids ever tried to do this, I'd kill them, like getting a lift home just in your shorts 
and flip flops on the back of a motorbike with no helmet, like stuff like that from people I used to. But brilliant memories because you just remember like weaving through the traffic of Beirut and with a coke in your hand because you're so kind of parched after roads. It's just brilliant, really, really, really fond memories of it. Actually, um, I'd love to have been around then, got involved in that kind of social scene. Do you think that's lost a bit now? Um, I don't know because I think you can get nostalgic about these things as well. Yeah. And ultimately, I don't. I haven't for a while been involved in like domestic, domestic rugby in Lebanon in terms of training regularly and playing clearly there. Um, but there was definitely a really kind of nice feeling about it, where as well because there wasn't like a league and intense competition, and you took a match whenever you could get a match. Training wasn't wasn't high intensity. It wasn't like what are we going to do today? Let's hit the pads. It was like let's yeah. Play and it was yeah, just so much fun. fun or let's 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 do some rugby in the beach or let's like go down, down the tire and have some you know a, a session on the sand and it was just, just much more about like let's play rugby and then have a bit of fun um which mm. which is great um which i really liked but you know obviously if you're just looking for performance and improvement that's not the way you run a team but for me i yeah, just really fond memories of it yeah, yeah i remember that that's 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 how i got my first introduction to lebanon rugby i think i came over Summer holidays, two thousand and fifteen. I uh, came over for like four weeks, and it was it was on the two, yeah sorry two thousand five sorry um and it, it was the same pitch that university pitch in um in uh, near Cola behind Cola yeah it's not gonna be yeah yeah the, the world yeah. Cola yeah yeah so it was just like so I, I rock up onto the pitch and obviously it's just sand it's not pitch it's just sand with some stones and it's just like and, and, and no one's got a ball, and everyone's like, oh, who brought the ball? Who forgets to bring the ball? And then my dad has to go to the car, and he brings this really flat ball, and then you're just playing touch for two and a half hours on a football pitch, and it's just like, you're, or you just play till the lights go out, and you're just drenched. You're just drenched yeah. in sweat. Yeah. But it, it, it was, I just remember it was just fun. Like, everyone was just having a laugh, and I think that's why people like, I think that's why um, back in those days, I think even up till now, um, this is just a theory I'm just thinking about right now. It's not something I've co- thought about before. Is that I think it's why there's why Lebanon doesn't really have those re- religious boundaries or that religion's not really talked about in the sport is because the teams that who are involved in the clubs now, whether it's like Serge who started Jamal or my dad who started Beirut, it's they were all playing together in those days, and it was just two hours of fun. It wasn't serious. It wasn't trying to compete against each other to get selected for the game because the coach wanted to pick a certain group they were just all playing together so that mentality of what the how they wanted to play the game they took to their clubs and that's why i think as the years have gone by that's why it's that's what it's become about it's just let's just have fun that's why i think touch is still touch i think is such a huge game in lebanon rugby it's like it's it's such a part of it just playing touch getting to know each other and just having fun sort of thing i think that kind of I think that's lost in the UK. Every club that I've been to, whether it's rocking up at Barking with Tumor or rocking up at Geese with Tumor or going to Finchie with Saliba, like the start of the training is like, okay, let's do four, five minutes of walking touch and then we're going to a drill. It's just like, oh, mate, let's just play 45 minutes of touch, man. Let's just, that's how you get loose. Let's just move the ball about. Let's just relax and have fun and try random passes. Because that's when you really get to have fun with your friends and get to know each other. Um, especially yeah, if you're amateur mean- rugby, like. It used to be when you, particularly in the UK, and you're right, touch was used as a bit of a treat or a reward. You know, if we do a good session, we'll do a bit of touch at the end. And it's kind of counterintuitive in a way to think, 
okay, we'll play effectively a, a scaled down version of the game we love if we do enough training for the game we love. Like it's weird. It's weird. But yeah. no, I agree with you. And on the religious thing, I completely agree. There was never a hint in the kind of what twenty years now. No, sorry, seventeen years I've been involved in Lebanon rugby. There was never really a hint of any issue about different backgrounds. I just don't think. It, it just never even got to the surface because people aren't interested. Yeah. People who are there, you mentioned that in the last pod. In, in you know any you know the one nation sort of mentality we got is is huge. I think and kind of any kind of organisation or t- your sporting team, you know that's how that's how things should be. Like I've, I, me coming into it, not really familiar with um, the kind of really the religious sex or the you know where the lines are, but I've never noticed anything. Of, about that which yeah. is I think is awesome yeah, definitely um, yeah so that was it it was a really um, I loved that year playing wise we also kind of would you know play tens tournaments play the UN we did it we went to Egypt for I guess four or five days to Cairo which was really enjoyable on a number of levels we, we just the rugby was good and I'd never been to Egypt and also going to Cairo with um, uh, your dad your uncle was really good because obviously they'd spent time in, in Cairo in the 1970s so it was all very familiar you know we'd walk out of the hotel in the morning and like there'd be a bus waiting for us to take us and your uncle would be like no no we're walking it's really close so like you know it's like 12 of us was a 10s tournament 12 of us trooping through the back streets of Cairo and Cairo is a like hectic place and it was really great really nice to see um and experience it that way um yeah had a lot of fun um so it was a really good year and as a result of that after I finished university, after I went and did my bachelor's, I spent another year in Lebanon, so went back for another year. And did what were years was that? Um, Jeepers, uh, 2008? 2007, 2008. So I would have been there then? Yeah, probably. So, so in between, during university, I still kind of went back, did the summers, did the 10s tournaments, went to Dubai a lot of the times, 2005, yeah. 2006. Um. And that was that was actually the pattern. Actually, Dubai in December and like tens in like June, May, June, and then anything else where you'd get an odd phone call to say, "Can you come and play this?" And I'd have to like, I don't know, like check my student loan and see if I could afford a flight somehow. And yeah. I used to go with like check airlines or whatever the cheapest possible, the sort of things we think. Yeah, it's all right. I'll just save fifty quid and have a ten hour layover in Prague, you know, just because you wanted to do it. Um, so that was good. So I did that all through university and obviously played a lot at university. I probably played most intensively at university and then um, went back for a year. Yeah, 2008. Yeah. So the, the first time we played, would that would, would that would have been the Beirut 10s in 2005? Um, probably uh, 2005. Yeah, and then we had Dubai in 2005. Is that the one? Is that the year that it, we got to the final and it really pelted down? That was 2006. Was it okay? That was two thousand six. Two thousand five was my first time because I was I was saying it before on the one of the other pods. I was underage. I was fifteen or something like that. So I wasn't supposed to. Was wasn't allowed to play with the senior with the men's team. But my dad like like did something on my ID sort of thing like to make sure that so I could play. And I didn't play that year that much. I think I, I just came off the bench every now and again, even though I was class. Um, but I was just so young. Uh, but I don't think really? we got very far with that. I mean, you completely open yourself up when you say things like that, really. <laughs> class. I mean, Jad alluded to it in the podcast. 
Go you on. carried a bit of weight in your early years. It's safe I don't. Know, I don't know where you get this. Where people get this idea? Oh, mate, from. you were baby fat personified. No way. I oh, can show you pictures. I've seen some old pictures. I was lean. All right. Okay. We'll leave it. I got, there. So 2005, 2006. I, I was. I was looking good. 2000, when I got to Lebanon, 2006, 2007, 2008, I indulged. <laughs> I won't lie. I've got some pictures where I've shaved my head and I thought I looked good. And I, then I realized I just looked like a ball, just round. <laughs> and then I had to do a lot of detox, detoxing. And then I slimmed down again. And the rest is history. By 2010, I was just taking over the world. Um, all right, so let's fast forward to 2010. So obviously you were involved in Lebanon rugby from uh, up to this point, seven years for that first official international match. Um, so was that, when that came up, was there a, for you, was it like a long time coming or was it just like, oh, okay, cool. Like this is going to be fun. It's going to be interesting. It's going to be a one-off or was this, what, what was your mentality like going into that? So uh, for the few years before that, I had been playing, I played a lot in university and then I played a lot of club rugby um, either when I went back and did like a master's of postgrad in, in England, or I played quite a lot of club rugby under the All-Ireland League in Ireland. So my, my rugby was very much focused on the UK, my kind of week-to-week rugby. Um, and then it was always like a bit of a treat to fly out and play in a, in a tournament or play with anything to do with Lebanon. But but I was applying my trade, if you like, in, in, in Ireland mostly um, and in England. Um, and then when Lebanon, I always kind of kept in touch, obviously, with with. Alex and, and Mike and seeing kind of what was going on and I knew the federation had been formed and I knew there was discussions to try to get kind of an international team off the ground so yeah when I was when I was kind of invited to it I was over the moon um, super happy I went to Beirut I think a week beforehand trained with the team kind of uh, and most of whom I knew relatively well anyway from just being around in tennis tournaments and etc um, but no I, I remember it vividly and I remember the feeling of and I actually think about this a lot when I see people make their debut internationally proper rugby players should we say make their debut internationally um until the until not Lebanese players as in as in like top tier internationals yeah I think until the whistle goes you're not an international player and and when the whistle goes that's it you're an international player nobody can take it away from you now you can have a pretty crap story if you get if you like rupture your Achilles in the first minute and that's all you've ever played international. But a bottom line, you're an international. So I I really remember that moment of kind of kick off and all right, that's it. Interna- at first, that's it. International rugby. Um, and it, yeah, it wasn't in front of fifty thousand people. And it was on a pitch in the sevens in Dubai and it was against Jordan and it was but it was still fantastic. Like like you know, wonderful. Really, really good. Yeah, I remember. You and you were playing. Ten. You were playing fly half, weren't you? Oh me, yeah. I was natural fly half. You was exactly You were like one of those nineteen seventies fly half where you wanted to pass off your left hand, you turn around and pass off your right. Well, that's not true. <laughs> <laughs> could, um, you, could you name that that start on fifteen right now? Could I name it? Yeah. No. How how many could you think you could get? Ten. Really. Go on then. I wasn't even playing. I reckon I could get 10. <laughs> He's such a keen old scar in the archives. Uh, <laughs> um, it's a... Uh, no, um, how did they come about playing 10? Um, good question. They needed 10 at the time. I used to be... I played I played the most and best rugby of my career when in my early 20s until I was like 23, honestly. And then like work and life took over and I didn't get to play as much. 
Um, so actually, I was I was a relatively good utility player when I was young, um, and I could play across the back line. I spent most of my school career at scrum half, actually, um, hence my wonderful left-handed pass screen. Um, so so it was like ten wasn't an issue, and obviously I couldn't have stuck it at a much higher standard at ten, but that standard was fine. I was fine at ten, and I. Um, I remember actually second half, so I scored a try. I scored, I was a bit gutted. It was Lebanon's second ever try, and Ziad scored Lebanon's first. So it was, you know, robbed from me. Ziad wasn't the first try scorer. Yeah, he was. It was Wattel. No, Wattel was third. No. Are you sure? Either way, either way, the important takeaway from this conversation is that I was second, not first. So, <laughs> okay. So he was Ziad, if I understand. I'm sure it was. I can remember it. Ziad went Did in he? and he yeah. and he and the guys hit them and rolled and dropped over the line. I can remember. Yeah, I remember because I was supposed to. I, I, I so you were to miss thirty Ziad. yards back. Yeah, no, I, I made the pass, mate. I was supposed to hit Hammond to wheel on the wing, and Ziad just put his hands up and just took it. Uh, Classic. Took it so yeah, it was fun, and then that was it. Two thousand ten, internationals kicked off, and here ten years later, you know, decade on, loads of international matches as a federation, and lots of exciting tours and things. Okay, so name us the fifteen, or as much as you can of that squad. I've started fifteen. Seems like a futile exercise. So I'll, get the, I'll get people wrong. You'll say, "Oh, you're the no, no, no." Because I'm, I'm trying to figure out. So I'm trying to look at it. So Zian, Abid Zian, right? There you go. So Abed Ziad, okay, yeah. His, um, Liam Fitzgerald, bizarrely. Yeah. Hisham Bay. Was he at five, was he? He was at eight, but I couldn't remember the five. <laughs> Mo Biro. Yes, correct, Mo Biro. Um, was John Paul Platt, was he, did he play in the first? I don't think he did, actually. JP was a great player. Yeah, he was a great player, but he wasn't there, I don't think. Yeah. Classic flanker, he was, he was good. Um, so who would it have been? Hisham by eight. Who played six and seven? Balut. Did Zahi play? Who? Zahi. No, he wasn't there then. It was, what's his name? Remember the guy who lived in Dubai with the long hair? He played for the Hurricanes. He used to play in rugby. What? Macram. Macram, yeah. So he was one flanker. And then Uh, some of the flankers. Fred, or was Fred on the wing then? Fred was on the wing then. (laughs) Classic. He wasn't a flanker anyway. Um, then you were at nine, right? Correct. I was ten. Yeah. Didn't didn't really pass to my centre, so I can't really remember them. Rudy, I think, I think well, no, I think it was Jad and Jamil. Could have been. I don't think Jamil played in the first game. You sure? I don't know. Well, um, Hamad Tawil, and yeah. then who played at fifteen? So no. Who played 15? Oh my somebody god. That, somebody that made a, a big impression on the game. Um, <laughs> How, I'm sure Hassan Karaki would have been there, wouldn't he? Maybe on a bench. So when I played, Hassan used to play 12. I think like 30 years, not that time, but like yeah. 2003, 2004. Hassan was an inside centre. Yeah. Or actually, usually your dad, your uncle would push him by inside centre and then just shouted him the whole time. <laughs> just absolutely. Classic. You know. But uh, yeah. So that's that's the best I can do for the fifteen. Yeah, I so, remember that. Still got that shirt, in fact. Yeah, um, me too. So that's at my mom's house. I'll be framing that on my um, on my last shirt whenever I get a chance to put them somewhere. What number? So you had number ten, and the last shirt was number thirteen, wasn't it? Yeah. Uh, 
Okay. And, and after that game, who was playing? It was UAE versus Japan, wasn't it? We watched afterwards. So, was it Korea or was it Japan? Japan, because I remember it was John, uh, what's his name? John Kern was the head coach. And it, and wasn't, Robbie yeah, it wasn't UAE, was it? it was Arabian Gulf. Arabian time. Gulf, yes, correct. Arabian Gulf. Yeah, because I was saying um, cause John Kerwin was the coach of Japan then, oh, yeah. and, and yeah. Robbie Orr was like, like all over him because he was a fellow Kiwi, like, and he's like a <laughs> Kiwi legend. Um, all right, okay, so let's fast forward. Oh, before we fast forward, Tim, is there anything you want to say about rugby or university? No, about rugby in general. <laughs> rugby on this rugby focus. I meant like the, that first test or university or anything that he said so far. No, 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 no. Okay, so. Let's fast forward. So you've you retired in 2018 after we won our last ARC win, which was in Lebanon um, against Iran in the final. And once you left, you took a you it took well it took a while, but you're now a board member of the federation, right? I how am. did that? So how did that come about? So did you approach the federation and thought you wanted to get involved? Did they approach you? How did it work? I honestly can't remember about who approached who. I was always, even I think probably in the, I always tried to stay actively involved throughout the whole time I was playing, not just turning up to tournaments, but seeing how I could help and seeing, you know, keeping an interest. Um, and then in the last years, as I was, um, I guess, one of the senior players, I kind of just kept relations with the various people who were who were running it. And then I really honestly can't remember how it came about, about a discussion about sitting on the board. But it seemed for me like a very natural move. I was very keen to, I guess, one of the big, one of the big things I was really conscious of over the last ten years, really since I was twenty, from from about the time I was twenty four, work took over, and I travelled a lot for work, and I wasn't able to commit to rugby as much, and so consequently, I felt like, well, ten years later, I've learned a lot because of my work life and things that I've done in work that could help Lebanon rugby in a different way. It's not on the pitch. Um, so how can I use what I do now to support Lebanon rugby in a kind of new phase? Um, and for me, you know, it was it was a kind of natural move, and very happy to kind of get involved with the board and seeing how I could seeing how I could help grow a sustainable organisation rather than just simply contributing on the pitch. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so how long have you been on the board, sorry, until now? Since? So I don't know, but a year, I would guess. Oh. Um. So not that long, but a year. Have you got any specific role on the board? So, I mean, everybody's role on the board is to effectively set long-term strategy for the organisation like any board and to really support and enable the executive team to go about their business. So that's kind of generic board rules and requirements. When I was first asked to join, it was with an eye on governance. So how effectively, accountably and transparently the organisation, the board works. So it's really to look specifically at issues such as that. Um, so I tend to kind of, I guess not focus on it, but have a natural inclination to look at trying to make it work as effectively and efficiently as possible. And that's also for like the management team to help to, to, to connect the board with the management team as much as possible. So I'm in relatively close contact with the management team on, on various things they're working on. Um, so that's yeah, that's really it. So are you um, at the start? So obviously, as being a board member, you're not required to get involved into day to day stuff. But with what your your background in the game of Lebanon rugby and obviously having such a 
a good relationship with a, a lot of the senior players and a lot of players in the national squad and the, who played domestically. Did you ever feel that you wanted to be more involved on the ground and stuff going on on the ground at Lebanon Rugby? Or were you happy just taking it, like sitting back on the board and just helping them run things from a governance point of view? It's more what I could do. So if I lived in Lebanon, I'd absolutely be happy to get involved in the crowd, in the, on the ground. I'd be happy to, you know, improve myself, work on myself as a coach so that I could coach some young team under 16s or absolutely. But the reality is I live overseas and the reality is I can't be involved in the ground. So how can I be involved? It's I can be involved by, and, and it's actually, it's difficult in its own right to support and be part of a board when you're not in country anyway. Mm. Um, so that in itself is a challenge. But, um, but one that's kind of really enjoyable. I, I just like, it's just a really lovely way to give back, I think, and volunteer effectively. And I think it's also a culture, that kind of volunteering culture we should be encouraging. And it's a really natural. It's like Ronnie Bashur, like he's not playing anymore, but he wants to see how he can manage. It's like Abed Sinno. When he stopped, he went, he came to manage. Like Fred, someone like Mark would, would at a moment's notice come and want to help on management or organisation. It's a really nice ethos to, some people will do it by, helping out doing tournaments. Some people will do it by chalking out the line. Some people will do it by coaching. Some people will do it by sitting on the board. It's sort of irrelevant. It's more just the spirit of after you hang up your boots, you've still got something to give. Yeah. Are you, are you, are you planning on coming out, going out to Lebanon anytime soon? Or, well, obviously with this coronavirus thing, but do you plan on going out and just seeing how things are going? Because obviously management or you know, everyone, whoever's on the ground working on Lebanon Rugby are reporting back to you as the board saying we're doing this or we're doing that. You know, of all the stuff that's going on, all stuff exciting on the ground in domestic rugby, do you want to, are you looking forward to having the chance of going out there and seeing that? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I was in I was in Beirut two months, a month and a half before the coronavirus lockdown came. So I'm back and forth and work will bring me back to Beirut now and again. And it definitely gives me a chance to kind of rekindle relationships and see people but I definitely feel like I'm not as plugged into the to the youth rugby as I'd like to be just and purely because it's exciting like I love seeing the pictures of all the kids and like how it's what it's grown to and it's it's really cool so yeah definitely um and I'll have to you can't it's one thing to dial into board meetings abroad but it's another thing to dial into board meetings from abroad and never travel to Lebanon to to see what's going on rugby wise but I think it's a really it's a really weird one so there wasn't any internationals this year um but it, it is still it'll still feel really odd to me when the international group gets together to play and to not be involved and to just like be watching it and you know getting updates on whatsapp or facebook or whatever it'll be weird but um i hear you such is life i hear you <laughs> Tuma, so, you want to move yeah. to say anything <laughs> sort of a private joke there is it Oh, not really. <laughs> uh, what do you think? Is, what's the kind of biggest thing you're dealing with with the federation at the moment? Is it recovering from the coronavirus, or um, are you still able to? Is this an opportunity to kind of reset and take a look and, and use the opportunity to figure things out and start again, or what? What? What kind of? What's the big key things that the federation are working on at the minute? Um. I mean, for me, it's an easy one, and it's the message I gave to the board when I joined. Um, the board's changed, the chairman's changed since then, um, and one or two board members have changed. But it's about it's it's money, it's funding, it's revenue. The board, the, the federation as it stands, isn't financially sustainable. 
Um, it needs to be financially sustainable to be sustainable. Um, and it's uh, for me, it's absolutely number one priority. And I think a lot of that emphasis comes from, you know, running a business and the reality that money is the lifeblood to be able to do what you need to do. And it's the same in sport um, in terms of building an organization. So really, without funding, there isn't a, there isn't a reliable, sustainable future for Lebanon rugby, in my opinion, because it, it, you count too much on people's goodwill. Um, and, vol- and volunteering, which isn't a sustainable way to, to run as an organization. So for me, the overwhelming priority is funding. So then we look at, well, how do we get funding? We can do it a number of different ways. One is to progress through um, the kind of ranks of membership of World Rugby to the point where we can access slightly more funding. But even then, it's not huge amounts of funding. Um, and the second is to build this kind of sustainable commercial model as an organization where we are earning revenue ourselves and being able to spend that on the federation. Um, the first one in terms of progressing as a federation takes time. And the second one has just been absolutely laid flat by the realities of the economic crisis in Lebanon. Already, it's it's a difficult country to get sponsorship in. There's, there's not necessarily a culture of um, widespread, widespread sports sponsorship outside of typically strong sports, such as, let's say, basketball or football. Um, but it's made just way harder by the reality that the economy's in big trouble and there's a, a kind of real crisis around foreign reserves and dollars and, and inflation. Um, so for me, it's really difficult to see uh, how without taking some fairly big steps and kind of not gambles, but starting some initiatives of our own and being slightly more entrepreneurial about it, how we were going to be able to bring in the funding we need. And it's not a huge amount of funding. In the grand scheme of organizations, you don't need a lot to run Lebanon rugby. And what we're really talking about is salaries to pay core staff and to be able to extend core staff to not just like administrative development officers, people who can work in schools. It doesn't cost a lot of money, but, you know, you need to we need to kind of put some, I guess, discipline and rigor to the organization, which is what the, the management team are doing. But they can't do that without funding. Simple as that. Mm. So what are the initiatives that you that you've talked about recently is is the the friends of lebanon so you want to talk a bit about that yeah so probably that that one's probably a bit early to kind of look into the details of but um in terms of initiatives we've looked you know there's been a while of looking in country at what can be done and the reality is i think are a big opportunity is out there for us in terms of engaging our diaspora so Mm. looking at people lebanese living outside lebanon who are willing to contribute and who recognize that um both the combination of coronavirus and the economic crisis is hurting, well, it's hurting Lebanon as a whole, but hurting kind of sports organizations in Lebanon Um, and whether we can tap into that and have them support. But yeah, we're working on a couple of different initiatives, which, which we'll probably look to launch in the, in the, in the next couple of months. Um, So it's kind of very much watch the space, but it's also just a really hard, it's a really hard thing to, shift the, shift our mindset, I think away from, Hey, let's just get sponsorship and see what we can get and, go game to game and I think there's also the reality that for a long time Alex had, had supported um, both kind of in terms of kind of personal and administrative support but also financial support to Lebanon rugby and I think people don't get that there's nobody behind the scenes now that's going to be able to do that with push comes to shove if push came to shove and you know Alex spoke to you guys about this and on the podcast and obviously you know this Kareem but if push came to shove at any time in the last 10 years and money needed to come into the federation for it to be propped up 
your dad would or could have done it. That that does not exist now. There isn't. There is. No, there's no way if we require it that money will just appear out of nowhere. So we really have to look at ourselves in the cold hard light and think, how do you build like this in a sustainable way? And that's really a, a focus for the board. I think everybody's really clear about that. Yeah. Well, me and uh, we, me and Tuma said it on I think a couple of podcasts ago that we said like, you know, what's the what does Lebanon need? Like, what do we feel? Lebanon needs number one priority and we both said the same thing we said like a home for rugby where it's a field it's a pitch dedicated to rugby where we could have stands and change room and a clubhouse a, a gym or whatever so for example if say tomorrow hypothetically Lebanon rugby got a check for one million dollars now based on the budget of what the Lebanon rugby needs that could that one million dollars could last over 10 years to keep it functioning or so would you would you think that one million dollars could be used would be better to get a field, build it up, change the rooms, clubhouse, have a home for Lebanon rugby, or would you use it to budget the federation on a, a f- ten year, five year, whatever plan? Really good question. Well, I I have, I have this is my job. This is my job. Not everyone could just do it. Um. Obviously, I'd have to think long and hard about this if I was to give you a concrete answer. But I guess, and let's take the one million figure away because I don't think it's enough for a field. But let's say it was enough for a field. The, the question of whether you spend down capital or invest it in the long time, I think you got to do. I would be in favour of Lebanon Rugby um, re- coming up to a long-term lease agreement with the field um, rather than thinking of buying anything themselves. But what you need is the revenue to be able to afford a lease agreement of let's let's say it's a hundred thousand dollars a year for for to just completely have sole access to a field, make it up hundred thousand dollars a year. Um, I'd be much more in favour of that uh, than than sinking all your capital into just kind of one field because the field's lovely and the field's great, but if if nothing, if the organisation itself isn't sustainable and we don't put the structures around it to grow the number of teams, grow the number of clubs, grow women's rugby, grow Youth rugby, like Manu's doing now, um, has been doing for a long time on a voluntary basis. You know, it's it's there's no point in having an empty field that you play on once a month. Yeah. Uh, so so it's it's a difficult one, uh, but I would uh, I'd be much more in favour of a longer term lease. And I also think it's more realistic. You know, the amounts you'd be talking about for a field anywhere that's accessible that people are wanting and able to travel to huge in Lebanon. Um, yeah. Uh, well, were you a part of the board when that whole field in, um, that belonged to like PSG was um, in circulation? I can't remember how I was part of the board, but I definitely heard about it and was kind of... So, so yeah. off the top of my head, what I think, what I remember of it is that... I forgot, what, what's, what school does it belong to again? Um, what school was it near? I can't remember. Seanville? Seanville. Yeah. Yeah, so I think it's Seanville. So it's not too far outside Beirut. Anyway, so PSG was starting like academy there, and they obviously the I think the people that the people that are doing it are friends with Banu. So they I think they the the they said that they could make it a four G pitch, which means that we're able to play rugby matches on it. They would put the rugby lines down, and they'll create give you give us rugby posts. Um, they will give us access to the. We'll have our own changing rooms dedicated for the rugby. There's obviously the clubhouse there, a gym there, and they'll also give us office space so we can make our uh, rugby, Lebanon rugby offices there. They'll give us, I think, I think it was something like 20 or 24 hours a week of uh, space 
mm. where we could use it how we want, whether we rent it out to football teams, use it for our games, whatever we want to do, use it. And they wanted, I think it was, I think, was, what was it, like 45000 a year they wanted us to pay? Or something like that. Like, that's probably something that's more on the line of what you were saying just now. Uh, but even that, that 45000 we couldn't commit to it because there was no money in Lebanon rugby, even though it would have been absolutely ideal. Yeah, and if you flip it on its head, as opposed to saying, what could we do and could we commit to, and is that what we want? Are we an organisation that currently will attract such commercial offers? So if I was an investor or a businessman starting a, a field or a, or a enterprise in Lebanon around like sports fields and renting them, and would I want to, in, in, want to enter into a commercial relationship with Lebanon rugby right now? Don't know. Um, no issue around the growth of the sport, the popularity kind of in terms of how, it's, how that's increasing in terms of aspirations and long-term goals, but in terms of our sustainability as an organisation and therefore ability to commit to whatever the figure is, 10,000, 100,000, 450,000 a year for the next five, 10 years, which which is what you're going to need for any investment. Um, I don't know, that becomes a harder question. So we're not, it feels like we're not in a position you know, until the point where we are able to maintain, finance the core of our organisation sustainably and consistently, we're not in a position really to talk seriously about initiatives like that, which is a pity. But at the same time, like, I love the idea of a home of Lebanon rugby. I think we all do, because it would just be amazing. Um, but at the same time, it's not absolutely necessary to grow rugby in the next five years, um, really. Whereas a functioning federation in my view is um so yeah yeah so okay so has the board obviously have you've got like obviously you have like i said the the uh, the management and the ceo are running the day-to-day stuff that's going on in lebanon rugby do you have is it a, a year-by-year plan now that you're going forward or is it a two-year plan four-year plan like what what are you expecting from your management? Uh, what what is it like? What's this, what's it what's the situation right now? Or is it up in the air now because of everything that's going on? So um, there's a strategic framework that basically we work to over what, how how we want Lebanon rugby to develop over the next three years. But there's two things which really um, can impinge on that. The first is the reality of the situation in Lebanon, and it's not like. You can use that as an excuse for the last 20 years, but it's very, the last nine months are very different in terms yeah. of, in terms of lockdown um, from coronavirus, but also in terms of an economic situation and economic uncertainty, which is over and above what we've seen in the last 15 years. Um, so that's legitimately kind of an outside variable that's, that's hard to factor in. And the second one is, put it like this, if I was, the, if I was on the executive management team of Lebanon Rugby, I would be heavily caveating anything I committed to do because I don't have I have not been given any resources to do it. Yeah. Uh, so so it it feels to me like Lebanon rugby needs to run a bit more like a startup, um, and a bit less like an orthodox sports fed a sports federation in a country such as Lebanon. We need to be much more realistic, pragmatic. We need to work out of cafes as people do, you know, as the guys do when they need to on their laptops getting stuff done, um. But, but if I was being tasked to run Lebanon Rugby at an executive level, not board level, I'd be saying, brilliant, and here are my plans, and here's how I'm doing it, but it's a long shot. What I'm signing up to is a long shot because you're not giving me any resources to do it. Mm. So I think it's fair enough. So the reality is it becomes much more of a 
bargain month in month out in terms of not bargain a um a process of like seeing what can be done given the constraints we're under which is a really woolly way of, of like answering the question but it's also just the reality but in in some ways like we can get bogged down in the board and the processes and the strategic vision and, and there's definitely ways in which everyone could be improving and how they work the board included but it's also i think really good to reflect back beyond the last six months to what's happened in the last really 10 years particularly over the time your dad was involved in Lebanon rugby where it grew from you know something that loads of foreigners were involved in to having our first international instilling some national pride um having loads i mean the work man who does and, and others that help him is amazing in terms of young people and kids and um the w- women's rugby is super good and then you just look at i reflect personally like over those whatever 15 years i was involved with Lebanon rugby and all of us think how many places we've got to visit travel to Mm. experience tournaments we've been in and the more we can draw people into that the better because i mean absolutely amazing so in some ways it's like the health of lebanon rugby as an organization is something that absolutely needs to be worked on but it shouldn't overshadow the fact that hundreds and hundreds of people are playing rugby at different age levels in lebanon yeah um, do you think? Do, do, sorry, Tombs. I just want just one more point, and I'll let you go in. Uh, what, uh, just on what you were saying there um, with the money situation, like obviously right now because there's no money in the federation, you have people working for the federation. You've got management, CEO. You've got people on the ground working. Um, do you think not having money um, is is a? It, what I'm trying to say is, for example, because there's no money it really shows a lot of passion from people who are involved in Lebanon rugby because it's just like, well, they're not getting anything, getting anything reward for it financially. They're just doing it because they love it. So you know that they're doing it for the right reasons. Um, do you feel that if when money comes involved, you'll have all these people come up from, you know, from various neck of the woods and say, oh, I'll get involved, I'll get involved, I'll get involved, and not really have that passion for Lebanon rugby, but really they see that there's a financial reward out of it? Um, yes and no. I think that's inevitable in anything where people can have passion. So you, you take the examples of, um, take the example of when a government wants to recruit more nurses in a country. No, and being a nurse is vocational and some people are going to be amazing nurses because they're that way inclined. And some people do it because the government had to increase the benefits so that they got paid really well and get a good pension, etc, etc. In some ways, it doesn't matter to me um, as long as they're managed in a controlled framework so as long as you run an organization where the incentives the rewards and the boundaries of anybody who's engaged are very clear and they deliver what they're what they're employed to deliver so yeah you're definitely going to have you know if Lebanon rugby got a grant from world rugby of five hundred thousand a year for the next 10 years yeah of course you'll have people firing in all sorts of proposals um as to what they think would be a good idea but and that's to be encouraged and you what you have to do is sift through just to make sure that people were you know, doing it in line with you, what you wanted strategically. So yeah, yeah, I think, and I think it's a good balance. You know, the board isn't paid obviously and won't be paid because it shouldn't, in my view, it shouldn't be. Um, and that's, that just shows there's the only reason people should be doing it, doing what they do is because they want the game of rugby to grow. Um, and it's kind of the message. It's funny, I, you know, I feel like I've kind of been involved in a no Lebanon rugby well, but I also am aware there's people now 15 years younger than me who are starting to play rugby whether 
kind of men or women don't have a clue about anything that we've been talking about in terms of what used to happen in the early 2000s or and it's all and, and they don't care and the, and the board quote unquote to them is just, just a bunch of guys who don't do very much or maybe run a particularly good tight ship in terms of an organization so i think we need to make sure that we're realistically that, that we're connecting with them so that they can see that whether we make bad decisions sometimes or good decisions the reason we're doing it is because we want Lebanon rugby to grow nobody's getting rich from Lebanon rugby yeah yeah how many um how many not employees but how many people do we have working are they all volunteers it depends it depends on what you mean by working because it, me- it depends what you mean by somebody who's saying okay this is their main focus as a job versus somebody who helps out with tournaments versus somebody who supports women's rugby. Um, but there's a decent kind of spread in terms of network. But I think one of the things the management teams have been trying to do more is like decentralize that a little bit because what mm. we haven't, we had, I think there's a tendency to centralize it all and somebody gets really excited about working for Lebanon rugby for 12 months. And so they take everything on themselves and then they leave and the thing falls apart. So by decentralizing it, Manu's a really good example. Youth, youth and youth rugby and, and um, has decentralized under Manu um, because effectively he manages that. He runs it really well. It's grown really well. It doesn't matter what happens to the management team. Like in a sense, as long as that's pushing in the right direction, the federation is going brilliant. It means it, it de-risks youth rugby because mm. even through board changing and your dad starting being chair, chairman, Kareem and et cetera, et cetera, it doesn't matter. Those kids still got to play rugby. Um, but and Matt, So Manu's not like a... Uh, junior rugby development officer for the federation he just does it that's just because what he loves to do yeah and he's effectively there's like a there's the board and then there's a, a kind of a ring around the board of like the management team which which man who's effectively part of given his mm. junior rugby um responsibilities but it's something i can't remember who it was you had on your podcast because as you know i'm an avid listener and um, he was talking about uh, you, and, you and a million others exactly uh he was talking about um volunteering and stuff and it is true like that's the thing that perhaps a bit of something we still need to work on that there's a real obvious pathway when guys leave Lebanon rugby in terms of playing they very clearly can volunteer I think that's harder for people overseas but certainly the guys in Lebanon mm. Mm. I think people want to volunteer certainly everyone well you know I'd love to get involved anywhere I can I think you know the people who be out there who want to who want to volunteer to do stuff obviously on the ground, it's a bit hard with, with, with people's time and and things going on. But um, yeah, like we ha- like we tap into the kind of diaspora, or like we try to. I think you know, ex players uh, in terms of growing the game and, and what jobs or what any way that they can help, we could sort of tap into as well. Yeah, for sure. It, just the difficulty is ninety five percent of it has to be on the ground in reality. Mm-hmm. It's like the unglamorous stuff of marking a pitch and making sure the water's turned up and um, the sort of stuff people expect other people to do, um, but that nobody does it um, <laughs> unless, unless somebody's really kind of got their eye on the ball. So okay, so well, I've I've only I've only got one more question left uh, to be fair, um, and that is, um, so what do you see your role involved in Lebanon rugby as in for the future? Do you see yourself in it for the next? one, two, three, four years? Or is it, is it something that you want to be a part of for the rest of your life? Like, I'm not saying a board member, but, you know, first of all, how long do you see yourself being a part of it as a board member and getting involved and, 
and trying to help it grow. And then how long do you think you actually stay involved in Lebanon rugby? Um, I'll continue to be a board member until the board doesn't want me to be a board member or I feel like I can't give the time to be a board member effectively, just like other con- like other constraints or work or otherwise. Um, probably ask me in like a while if that's still the case. Um, how long do I see myself being involved? Yeah, I think, I, you know, I see myself in some way being a friend of Lebanon Rugby for, um, for, for the foreseeable future for good, because the reality is whether I'm on the board or whether it's unofficially or whether I can help out in another way in 15 years time, I play rugby for my country and I was involved in Lebanon rugby as a player for 15 years and it's actually a really probably a really big part of my identity and it's probably um one of the things which reconnected me most with Lebanon or kept my connection I should say with Lebanon alive you know I have you know we all know people who are like me perhaps half Lebanese um have somewhere from somewhere else and don't don't connect with Lebanon don't stay in touch so Lebanon's become a crucial a Lebanon rugby's has caused Lebanon to become a crucial part of like who I am and my identity and even my work and stuff. So it's definitely a huge part that and I'll continue to um, be involved in whatever way, whatever way I can probably for the foreseeable future. And whether that's over the next one year for the board or the next 10 years for the board, um, I, I don't know. Um, I'd probably suggest from a governance perspective, it's unhealthy if I was there for 10 years. But the thing I want to accomplish most, I think with Lebanon rugby um, in support of the board is to make, to have an organisation that functions and will exist independently of outside funding or requirements for help or kind of volunteering in a volunteering is fantastic, but not as the central driver of your organisation. So if, you, if we can do that and be sitting in a period where a couple of years time, that's the case, like that's brilliant for me. That's mission kind of mission accomplished on a personal level. And um, I don't it's not like I think to myself, oh, I'd, I want to keep working at Lebanon rugby till Lebanon rugby's in the World Cup. Like that's not really my my aspiration for Lebanon rugby. The, I love the international side of it. I love that we got to represent it. But as Lebanon rugby grows, the proportion of people who are going to get to taste that will only become smaller. So actually, what you need to do is work to grow much more the the, the grassroots of it, which is really cliched. But um, the, in, for me, international rugby, the biggest attribute it gives us Lebanon rugby is exposure and an aspiration for players out there to want to get better and, and be better and raise the standard and more players to join, try and play rugby in their school because they saw a news article about the international players. You know, that's where Lebanon rugby is to me. It's not like I think to myself, oh, goodness me, before I die, I want to see Lebanon beat the All Blacks because I probably have to live a long time. But, um, but yeah, so that, that's kind of my aspirations. I don't know. At the same time, I'm in my mid-30s. I've just no idea what way it'll go. No idea what way work will go or anything like that. But whatever I can do now, um, that kind of is a read across from what I do in my day to day for my job. And if it can help the federation, some of that stuff can help the federation. Fantastic. Yeah. Uh, Tombs? No. <laughs> I was just bit me. I was just wanting to start reminiscing about. Uh, I enjoyed reminiscing about. Let's reminisce. What's your favourite? Yeah, favourite tour. Uh, oh, so many candidates. Um, favourite tour. I love the sevens in between Chennai in India and yeah. Line because so the reason good. I love that was because <laughs> it sounds funny. It felt quite professional. 
felt quite professional to have a tournament and then have a week where you just run through training and yeah we've got our next tournament in a few days mm. in a country it felt really it felt really cool and plus we were quite a tight knit group actually yeah we were saying this with Jed it was, you say that and then we were like very unprofessional at the same time we didn't have a coach we only had eight players <laughs> and, and then, it, but it turned out being one of most of us turned out to be one of the most sort of successful sort of tours yeah. on and off the pitch really so that was I really enjoyed that I really enjoyed Korea because mm. you know that was just different Asian games whole other scale again really great opportunity um, and then I loved the Lebanon games at home um, against Iran 2018 and when was one before that 16 15 15 I really liked 15 I really liked 18 and 18 for me I really enjoyed I mean I stopped I retired after 18 and I knew like I decided that was my last match and it's just really nice to win at home against Iran we'd always had a bit of rivalry against Iran for you know because of kind of how it worked out in the past um, and I was really yeah that was really good those are like highlights and it got the bug to get back or no? I, I don't. And the reason I don't is because I'm relatively competitive and I, I think um, I wouldn't, I'm not interested in being back. And even the last few years, you still feel like, okay, I still feel like I definitely can contribute to the team. I definitely, in the last tournament, I still started in my position. So I wasn't kind of like, it wasn't like, I didn't feel like I was limping out of it. But I do, I'm the sort of person that unless I feel like I can play as well as I used to, which I really couldn't for the last few years. I don't really want to play. And even like the last few years for me, your game changes. And it's that obvious thing of people move closer into the scrum. And not it's not something I necessarily find, but my game definitely changed away from an attacking game to a defensive game much more. Like I used to be a much more attacking player, much more. And then the re- and it wasn't, wasn't anything like you lose speed. It's because I didn't play regularly and travelled a lot and couldn't commit and if I'm honest it wasn't even like I didn't like I don't like playing rugby in the UK um, and because of that I you're never match sharp and match sharp matters in attack I always find particularly and particularly skills and distribution and, and making line breaks but in defence it, it's kind of like you can always put a hit in and once you know the basics of defence and if you go at it without you know kind of without worrying about what's going to happen you, you can put a hit in and I, I like that part of game but it's a pity it had that had to come out at the expense of the attacking game mm-hmm. yeah i remember when i first obviously when because when you were t- talking about you playing fly half in that first test in 2015 i remember like i, I was trying to remember like why was he playing 10 like because what no because what i remember you is, is that you were really really fast and really really strong strong for your size like like you were you were you were definitely a center like put, get get you on the outside of someone and no one could catch you. It was like Mark and his heyday on the wing. Like I didn't understand what what the thought process was of putting you at ten where you you don't have that space. We used to play um in with in tens. We used to play nine, ten, twelve. Uh, your dad at nine, Mike at ten, and me at twelve. Yeah. And w- in two thousand three, when I started, you're when you're eighteen, you're not like as fast as you're ever going to be, but you're 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 pretty much kind of getting to almost kind of your full development a couple of years off it at 12 i would play outside your uncle and um he was 42 at the time and he could keep pace with me at full sprint um and i will and i will admit i was i was fast in those days but your uncle you know 
has good genes. Your family has good genes, I think. Fortunately, it seems to have skipped the generation. Um, <laughs> but uh, no, but you, you're right. Uh, and I did play. I did play that. You and I played a tournament in Jamhur. You won't remember this. It's 2005, 2006, 2007. And your dad said if you scored a hat trick, he'd buy you a car. <laughs> Classic Jamhur. <laughs> And I scored four, and I said, "Well, can I get a bike?" And he told me to f off. Uh, he score. And in fact, I think actually for my fourth, you ran beside me, saying, "Pass me the ball, pass me the ball." <laughs> but, uh, Trying to catch up, probably. Uh, uh, but yeah, no, it's good. And the other thing is, like, I mean, you guys. Are both such a, I'm, I'm sorry, but that's such a Jamal thing. Like. Score, score! Yeah. I'll get you a car. Well, I remember mean, Mike came in in 2018. I was like, I'll give 200 dollars to anyone who scores a try. It's honestly the worst I, way to incentivize. I know. He just hogs the ball. Well, I'm, yeah, I'm still out 400 dollars. Here he is. Looks at it. Um, and then the other thing is like when you get you guys are now over 30, believe it or not, listeners. Um, but it's it's also a prioritization of like so. The last tournaments I went on, 2018 is a good example. I tr- obviously trained for 2018 hard, but you had to train harder to be in slightly worse shape because you're just a bit, bit older. But the key, but also had other responsibilities. So like I had four kids at the time and I would get up and do my sprint sessions before sevens tournaments at like six in the morning. And then before sevens tournaments, you know the time for sevens tournaments where you need to, some days you need to like do two a day trainings just to get you in the, so like you'd be doing like eight training sessions a week, but also four kids and a and a job and travel for work, and it was just like you'd be abroad somewhere trying to get your sprint sessions in, like, and it got a bit ridiculous. And even the tournaments, like I'd be away for eight nine days, and my Laura would be at home with four children. So just the re, there's a reality about it. And then you get kids at the other end of the spectrum who are 22 who can go to the gym two times a day, and I'd love that, and I wish I could do it, but it wasn't reality for me. Yeah. Um, so in some ways, I don't regret that in any way. I'm very happy with the choices I made, but there's definitely a trade-off for rugby. I mean, I definitely played my best rugby in my early 20s. Um, and from about 24, when I started spending a lot of time overseas, um, it just had to come second. In a way that in university, nothing really came second to rugby. Like yeah. apart from exams, nothing came second to rugby. Yeah. You would never miss a training because you get dropped. You would never, like you play, we used to play three matches a week. Um, but, Mad, mad. Days. What university did you go to? Went to Northumbria up in Newcastle, and then oh, I did good rug, good rugby university as well, isn't it? Yeah, it's good. It's good. And I, but I didn't, at the same time, I didn't love it. Um, <clears throat> I, I didn't drink in university, and there's definitely like a cultural thing off. Mm. It's, it's not it's a bit weird, but like you don't drink, we all drink. Kind of get left out of the club a little bit. But there are we. Were you were you in the starting fifteen? Uh, so I went to, I joined so as a fresher, I, I joined as a fresher, that's classic, um, uh, I joined as a fresher uh, and we had the trials and in the trials I got selected for starting 15 um, and I then got dropped after one match where I played, I had a howler and I got dropped to the seconds, this is the thing that really put me against it, then I sat on the bench for like a month for the seconds because the guys who played in the first match, well, they were the starters, but I just got dropped from the first team. And and then uh, from that, because I wasn't in the club, like I wasn't the lad. Um, so it's fine. It's fine. So no, in short, answer to your question, I wasn't in the starting 15. But I used you to should play, have been. We used to play Freshers, Freshers on a 
Saturday, uh, county on a Sunday, and then for second, third, fourth, whatever team you're on on a Wednesday. Jesus. It's great. So good. Yeah. I think I shopped three matches a week, like, and training, and and being in the gym, and it's so good. No, no, mm. no muscle soreness, no nothing, just straight back no, onto no. it. No. And, and you're also, at that age, when you're in your early 20s, you're also, you don't have, like, the thickness that you have 10 years on, like, whether you want to be lighter or not, you can't, because you're just a bit thicker. Yeah. Um, and that's not a euphemism for being fat. Although obviously fat creeps in, <laughs> but is the reality? I probably weighed, you know, eighty-two kilos in in university, eighty-three kilos, and then you know, I don't weigh that anymore. So there we go. <laughs> Let's not ask that number. Yeah. Um, so, Kareem, do you ever miss? What? Do you ever? Hold on, hold ever... on. Who's a guest in this podcast? Kareem? Yeah, I just want. I just want to ask Kareem something. <laughs> do you ever wish you did the kind of you uh, UK? Club, youth, uni, no kind of rugby scene. No, no, you want to what like drink drink out of a shoe? No, I'm all right, thanks, mate. If only it was drinking out of a shoe, that was the worst of your problems. You know, I I sort of I think, well, was it no, but on the pitch as well. Let me tell my one at a time. First of all, okay, drinking out of a shoe is one thing. Remember, I remember at Finchley. I remember at Finchley, I, I, I played. I came over for during the Christmas holiday, and there was uh, like a, I came like a week earlier than I usually come. And Sleeper was like, "Oh, I got a game on Saturday. Do you want to come play?" I was just like, "Yeah, okay, cool." And it was that the last home game or something. Play that game, and they're, they're like they're doing like the Christmas party thing, like funnel drinking out of each other's asses. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just like, what? Like <laughs> this doesn't appeal to me whatsoever. Like zero, zero, zero. Like it didn't appeal to. Like so, I probably would have enjoyed rugby, but I don't think I would have enjoyed. I don't know. I haven't said that. Like maybe when I moved to Lebanon, I um, soft, not softened up, but I probably got not as um, loose as I uh, was when I was living in the UK. When I was like, when I was like born and raised there when i moved to lebanon i i saw how people were a lot more conservative and you can't do this you shouldn't do that and i and i adapted to that quite well um so that's why i say i couldn't have done that but maybe if i never moved to lebanon i just stayed in that whole culture the whole time then you know Mm. maybe i would because i remember like worcester on the 17s we won the semi-final for the national championship and we we played we beat a team from up north and on the on the bus on the way down because I scored a try. Because I scored a try uh, off the base of the scrum. I had to drink my own piss. Oh. <laughs> but <laughs> at 17, you're just like, fuck it. The lads are telling me to do it. You've got to do it sort of thing. Like, so I did it. So I can imagine if I stayed there, I probably yeah, would have got, I, into I got into it. So, But now that I left, I'm just like, nah, I couldn't, I couldn't have done it. But I probably could have. <laughs> I probably would have leaded it. <laughs> <laughs> but no, uh, yeah, that's not it. That, I also think um, the style of rugby is different, and I, you as well, Kareem, enjoy hard ground rugby. Bottom line, like I, I dislike, particularly when I was like in my early thirties. Like, let's say I was getting ready for a ARC tournament, and I'd try to play like a couple of months of decently regular rugby. She used to get bored, like out there playing in some sludge in like February. 
thinking yeah. like just didn't enjoy it at all. And yeah. it is the difference when you go and you're playing like we played a lot of sevens in the last ten years, playing fast rugby on amazing pitches in Dubai, but nowhere else. Um, but hard pitches where you move quickly and the ball moves quickly and it's like and you're hot and you're that was great. Um, and it just it just never appealed to me. It's probably like guys who are used to playing kind of super fourteen or and as it was, and also then moving to play a season for, I don't know, Northampton Saints, and just thinking, actually, I'd rather go back down under to New Zealand. Yeah. Yeah, I can imagine. So. New Zealand yeah, get pretty great. bad weather, though. What's that? New Zealand get pretty bad weather as well. True. But I guess it's just the style of play is different and much more mm. open. And it, we, I think, as a, as a country, not as a country, as a kind of almost like rugby style and rugby culture, prefer fast aggressive rugby um no yeah it was one of the things robbie yule said to us actually in porto in 2010 he, he had <laughs> he really tried to put like a straight jacket on us in terms of you know playing good sevens with your kind of you put your pivot in the middle and then your two axes your two pods of three in either side putting a lot of kind of structure to it and we, we did not handle it well and we were playing horrendously and then at one point he just said right <laughs> obviously <laughs> i've obviously confused you guys too much just 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 play the way you like to play. Just be unshackled. So immediately we all started like goose stepping on our own try lines. Like, you know, like oh, I tried the chip and chase <laughs> from under the post. Emphasis on tried. Emphasis on tried. So at halftime, then he said, "All right, you probably swung too far the other way in terms of playing with like gay abandon, but um, bring it back, rein it back in a little bit." And that's what we play. We we play with kind of organized chaos much better than we do in tight structure i think um mm. we play much more we enjoy playing heads up rugby um i think we're relatively good at it i think we're also you know naturally uh quite competitive which is helpful yeah yeah <sighs> well i've got no more questions tim you got any more questions no there we'll probably the quick fire ones that we want Oh yeah, quick fire ones. All right, here we go. It's, it's, you you already know them because you listen to the pod. Avid listener. Yeah, I honestly, can't remember them. Oh, okay. never, never got to never got to the end. <laughs> never got to the end. Um, okay, so best play you played with and why, and best play you played against and why. It doesn't have to be in Lebanon rugby. It could be anybody from university, island, anybody. Best player. So the best player I played against was Simo Satiti, you know, the captain of Samoa. No. Um, the ex-captain of Samoa, he was a, played seven, I think. Um, I played against him in in Newcastle, North England once in some, I don't know, invitational thing. And he was just, I mean, he's just massive. I mean, when I say play against, he's obviously not trying to smash you because he could just be in hospital. Um, but I actually uh, stepped him, went round him, did him. Um, How old was he? He's prime of his career, mate. <laughs> I'm really glad he didn't try to tackle me because I probably would have got munched. Um, best player I played with, I can't. I honestly don't have a good answer for this, but I will say that some of the best, some of the hardest players I played with uh, were these two Fijians in um, in Cairo. So we went to Cairo and we were short of players, and the Fijians came up from the Sinai, the UN team came up in the Sinai and uh, they said oh I'll have two of our players so they gave us like their two crappiest players 
Um, but they were hard as nails. You know, they're, when they played against the Fijians, the Fijians would just try to smash the other Fijians to bits. And they were just hard as nails. And their names were Took Bill and Tooks. Um, and it was just just hard guys. Um, so there you go. If, 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 you can, if, you, if you can pick those two, who would next be? Um, <laughs> there was a scrum, scrum half called Kareem. Uh, what was he? You know that young guy? <laughs> the other Kareem? Great scrum half. This is embarrassing. <laughs> so you don't need to ask Kareem and just proceed Alex, talking about Alex, me. Alex put a different, like, at number 10 in his all-time I know. 11 on 15. Put, put another Kareem in. You're not even, you're not even the best Kareem at 11 on 15. I feel slightly aggrieved. In fact, I need a voice note, Alex, and give him some jip. I feel a bit aggrieved that I didn't make that all-time 15. Albeit... Oh, it, was like, it was like an all-time 50 it ended up being. 23-year-old Raymond Asfor and 32-year-old. Well, even if the all-time 50, he still didn't make that. Yes, but some of his, um, some of his choices were a bit suspect, to be fair. Liam right, Fitzgerald, yeah. I think he picked, like, who? Liam Fitzgerald. Well, because he's six foot seven. Uh, our closest locks have been. F- uh, he played lock. He even said like, like he was the tallest person you could think of. <laughs> All right, and well. Oh uh, right. What? Well, wait there. Wait there. One more. Well, best that, that was one quick fire. It's not so much a quick fire round, was it? As a quick no. fire. Yeah. Oh yeah. There's still more going on. Too. Go on. Best, best, and worst roommate. Oh. Well, he's only had one. So I'm well, going. All right, I'll get, I've got this one. Worst roommate was a 16-year-old Kareem Jamal who literally I flew in somewhere in Dubai and he's this little tubby boy that opened the door and he was 16. Best roommate, Kareem Jamal, 10 years later. How's that? <laughs> Ray, stop it. I know. What's that fact that you told me about, uh, apart from your wife, I'm the person that you spent most time with alone in the bed? In a bedroom, just to clarify. Bed, yeah, bedroom, bedroom, bedroom. Yeah, <laughs> I'm just saying that's pretty. That's a that's a sentimental touch. That very. Hmm, I'm thinking of another question. Uh, uh, quick, uh, I'll use that quick fire question I did on the run. What would you rather have? Well, hopefully, you'll know players these days. I'll use old school players. Would you rather have a Joe Rockathoco step, mm. but? A Steve Thompson speed. You know the hooker, Steve Thompson? Yeah, I know, yeah. Or, or, a Steve Thompson step, but a Shane Williams speed. Why did you go Shane Williams? It's such a rubbish question. <laughs> First of all, listen, think of something better, Joe, and then we can use that one. I'm trying to bring something start, new here. Start bringing some of those questions from Chennai, would you rather, or... The, the last question. I'd, 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 want, I'd want the speed, not the step. Mm. Oh, I, I didn't have any follow up. <laughs> That's interesting. And why? <laughs> <laughs> I've no follow up. Okay, brilliant. Would, would, would you rather? Oh. <laughs> would you rather Lebanon rugby win the World Cup, you get injured in the first game? Or. <laughs> we lose in the final, but you play the whole World Cup. Oh, that's a toughie, isn't it? I mean, I'm obviously going to have to answer it. I'm obviously going to say Levin and Rugby win the World Cup. Obviously. Then, then you'll Publicly. be a liar. Publicly. 
Yeah. God, if I, got, if I got injured in the first round, I'll make it. I'll give them food poisoning, anything. Make sure that they're not winning that final. It's not happening. You know, one thing we didn't, and realised we needed to kind of, kind of bring it to a close, and this has been fun, but one thing we didn't reflect upon was a particularly pivotal match we played um, in Portugal against against Portugal in 2010. So, Ray, I can't... The signal's going. <laughs> well, what happened? You really want to go far? You really want to go with this, Raymond? It's been so, a pleasure, mate. It's been really fun. Um, absolutely. Get your next guest on. Ask him a few questions about 2010. So, really hang on. Why don't I know the story? No, 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 no. no. Joe, I'll tell you afterwards. I'll tell you afterwards. I'll tell you afterwards. <laughs> all fair. All fair. Right. Thanks, guys. <laughs> Thanks, Ray. Thank See you, you later. Ray. See ya. Thanks, mate. Uh, do you want me to tell you the story? Yeah, you're still recording. Yeah, I know. Well, okay. yeah, it's, it's nothing bad. It's, um, we were playing, I think we were playing, our next game was up against Portugal, mm. and they were just dominating, they were beating everybody, like, uh, they used, they literally used their, they had their whole World Series 7 squad do a university course so they could play in the, in the tournament, <laughs> so they literally just like the proper World Series team playing, mm. and I was just like, I'm out for this game, lads. <laughs> Serious? And I, and you I, pulled bench, out. I benched myself, like, and we end up losing like sixty odd nil. Oh mate, just so you didn't have that L against you. Well, we had the other. I had L's in the other games. I didn't mind. It was just too much. Like we got just. It was just. I was just like, did, did, did you even fake an injury or did you just pull out? Oh no, I faked an injury. I told him I got a hamstring. Oh, right. that's poor form. Poor form. Yeah, I was young. I was young. I was young. But, well, uh, and and Aspore realised, or have you, oh, you Aspore knew straight away. Everyone knew straight away. Like uh, it was part of the, it was part of the banter. The rest of the the rest of the uh, tournament. You suddenly fine for the next game then? Oh, hundred percent. Last game. I'll step in and everything. <laughs> Classic. <laughs> uh, but that was it. That was good. Um, oh, it was good. It was a good little podcast. Ray you didn't go too. Good really, love, kept, it, kept it positive. No controversy. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Which is good. Um, yeah, that's about it, pal. Oh, all right, mate. Well, well hopefully, this sinks and all that. All yeah, that. I'll do I'll, what I'll do. I'll do, I'll save it now, then we'll see from there. Mm. All right, kid. All right, kid. All right, see you later. Later. Ciao, mate, bye. Yeah.